Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Sarah Thompson, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit, or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Antiphospholipid syndrome, or APS, is a systemic autoimmune disease that leads to arterial, venous, and microvascular thrombotic events. Lifelong anticoagulation is recommended for patients who experience thrombotic events related to APS. Currently, warfarin is considered the standard anticoagulant therapy per guideline recommendations. Direct oral anticoagulants, or DOACs, are utilized in a variety of cardiovascular and hematologic conditions. Pharmacist Caitlin Shawns reviews recent literature comparing warfarin to DOACs in patients with APS and discusses which anticoagulant type is appropriate for a patient with APS based on specific risk factors and clinical criteria. So it wasn't until the 1980s that the term antiphospholipid antibody syndrome was first used to describe unusually acute thrombotic events in patients with elevated antiphospholipid antibodies. However, these likely weren't the first reported cases. Years prior, there were reports of unusual thrombotic phenomena, especially in patients with systemic lupus erythematous. With the development of assays to test for antiphospholipid antibodies, we're now able to identify and diagnose patients with antiphospholipid syndrome, leading us to question, what is the best anticoagulation strategy for this patient population? So hop on in, join me for the ride, as I go through some of the current literature and recommendations for anticoagulation and antiphospholipid syndrome. As for learning objectives today, I hope that you'll be able to describe the pathophysiology and risk factors associated with antiphospholipid syndrome, or APS as I'll refer to in this presentation. Also be able to summarize the literature regarding the use of direct oral anticoagulants or DOACs versus warfarin in patients with APS. And finally, discuss anticoagulant choice in APS based on patient-specific factors. To learn about APS today, we're going to be following a patient from admission to discharge and follow-up, applying literature along the way to determine the best anticoagulation treatment. So let's meet our patient for the day. We have a 31-year-old female who presents to the ED with increasing shortness of breath over the past 48 hours and mottled skin. Her past medical history includes systemic lupus erythematous, hypercholesterolemia, a smoking history of one pack per day for the past five years, and two pregnancy losses less than 10 weeks into gestation. As for medications, she's taking atorvastatin, recently restarted ethenylestradiol norgestimate about a month ago, and takes hydroxychloroquine for her systemic lupus erythematous. In the ED, they diagnosed the patient with acute respiratory distress syndrome, a new pulmonary embolism on imaging, acute kidney injury, levito reticularis, which is a skin condition that presents with a bluish red discoloration of the skin in a net-like pattern, and thrombocytopenia. The patient was immediately intubated for respiratory support, started on an IV heparin drip, and transferred to the ICU. When discussing possible causes of this patient's presentation, the primary service mentions antiphospholipid syndrome being on the differential. So what is antiphospholipid syndrome? 
This is going to be a systemic autoimmune disease that's characterized by thrombotic or obstetric events that occur in patients with persistently elevated antiphospholipid antibodies. This is not a common condition we see in the general population. However, the prevalence is going to be up to 50 cases per 100,000 and an annual incidence of one to two cases per 100,000. Considering diagnosis of these patients, most of them will have a diagnosis prior to the age of 50. In one study looking at 1,000 patients, they found that only 12.7% had a diagnosis of APS after the age of 50. And in that same study, they found that most of the patients were female. Of those 1,000 patients, 820 of them were female, suggesting a ratio of almost five to one female to male. Lastly, antiphospholipid syndrome appears to be often associated with other autoimmune diseases. For example, up to one-third of patients will have systemic lupus erythematous co-diagnosis with APS. Thinking about our risk factors for APS and risk factors for thrombosis, we have quite a few different risk factors. There are multiple modifiable risk factors, including hypertension, smoking, immobilization, estrogen-containing contraceptives, and hypercholesterolemia. We also have multiple non-modifiable risk factors, and these can include pregnancy and autoimmune conditions like systemic lupus erythematous. I think this is a point where we as pharmacists can help with screening our patients with APS, identifying those modifiable risk factors, and helping our patients understand those risk factors and assisting with treatment when possible. So this is going to lead us to our first participation question of the day. So once again, we see our patient who is admitted to the ED and transferred to the ICU and their past medical history, medications, and admission diagnoses on the screen. So the first question will be, what risk factors does the patient have for antiphospholipid syndrome? And as we move to the next slide here, well, you'll be able to submit your free text response. So you can text to MayorRx at 22333 or go to pollev.com slash so I see systemic lupus erythematous, recent pregnancy, smoking, oral contraceptive use, systemic lupus erythematous. These are some great answers coming in. Smoking, yep, exactly. Good estradiol. So great job, everyone. I think you really hit the main points that I was looking for here. So our patient has multiple risk factors, including systemic lupus erythematous, hypercholesterolemia, smoking history, as well as the use of estrogen-containing oral contraceptives. I also want to point out that our patient is female and less than the age of 50, so this is really hitting our most commonly seen patient characteristics in our APS population. These risk factors and the patient characteristics seen likely help the primary service add antiphospholipid syndrome on their differential list for the patient's current conditions. And so while the patient's already on a statin, they would benefit from smoking cessation, as well as use of a different contraceptive agent upon discharge or in the outpatient setting. So how does antiphospholipid syndrome lead to increased thrombosis risk? There are multiple hypotheses, and I truly mean multiple hypotheses. But today I'll walk through one. It starts with the production of antiphospholipid antibodies from B cells. And there are three currently recognized antiphospholipid antibodies, the first being lupus anticoagulant, anti-beta-2 glycoprotein-1, and finally anti-cardiolipin. It's thought that these antiphospholipid antibodies can then bind to proteins on the surface of endothelial cells, causing activation of monocytes and neutrophils, activation of the complement system, and increases in coagulation. 
All of these hypotheses together, including the one I just described, are thought to lead to increases in inflammation, vasculopathy, thrombosis, and pregnancy complications. I think it's also important to note that thrombosis and antiphospholipid syndrome is thought to be the result of a triggering event. So while our patients with antiphospholipid syndrome have persistently elevated antiphospholipid antibodies, that doesn't mean that they'll be consistently in the hospital for new thrombotic events. So the idea is, is that a patient would have the presence of these antibodies, and then there would be a triggering event leading then to thrombosis. And these triggering events can include a variety of things, but I list a few here, including infection, inflammatory factors like a flare of systemic lupus erythematous, estrogen-containing contraceptives, surgery, and immobility. When we think about our patient today and their presentation, I think the use of estrogen-containing contraceptives that were recently restarted and possibly an infection that led to acute respiratory distress could be possible triggering events. As for clinical manifestations of APS, there are multiple conditions. However, deep vein thrombosis and thrombosis of cerebral arteries are going to be our most commonly seen venous and arterial thrombosis, respectively. However, patients may also present with pulmonary embolism or non-thrombotic events such as pregnancy complications, levito reticularis, and thrombocytopenia. It's also important to note that patients may have uncommon presentations such as thrombosis in areas that we don't commonly see, including the retinal vein, the portal vein, and the and adrenal thrombosis. Today, our patient has multiple of these commonly seen presentations, and so they have a pulmonary embolism, levito reticularis, and thrombocytopenia. I also want to point out that while not at this specific encounter, the patient has had a history of pregnancy complications as well. For diagnosis of APS, we currently use the Sapporo criteria, which is going to be defined as one clinical criteria and one laboratory criteria. Our clinical criteria includes vascular thrombosis or pregnancy morbidity, and so vascular thrombosis is going to be defined as venous, arterial, or microvascular thrombosis in any tissue or organ. As for laboratory criteria, we have our three different antiphospholipid antibodies, so we would see elevation in lupus anticoagulant or elevation in IgG or IgM of anticardiolipin or the anti-beta-2 glycoprotein 1. And I do want to say that you only need elevation in IgG or IgM to have this be positive. For example, if a patient had elevated IgM on the first testing, but on the second testing, their IgM was negative, but their IgG was positive, these are going to be positive in both cases. Also, testing for these antibodies should be repeated 12 weeks after initial testing. The reason being is that we can have transient increases of these antibodies in result to specific events like infection. So we want to confirm that they're having persistent elevation of these antibodies. I also want to note that the lupus anticoagulant is a clot-based assay, and so patients on anticoagulation can have false elevations in this assay, leading to false positives. However, there are certain assays like the Dilute-Russell's Viper Venom Time that have a heparin neutralizer built into the assay, and so it's thought that those would be less impacted by anticoagulation. Low molecular weight heparin is thought to maybe have less of an impact on these assays, however, likely still does have an impact, so that should be noted. Luckily, our tests that are used for the IgG and IgM antibodies for anticardiolipin and anti-beta-2 glycoprotein 1, these are not affected by anticoagulation, so these will be okay. 
Therefore, I think the recommendation would be, if possible, test for lupus anticoagulant prior to starting anticoagulation. However, don't delay anticoagulation if needed, and make sure to note what type of test is used. So let's go back and visit our patient. So with their multiple risk factors and their clinical presentation, the teams decides to order all the different antibody testing to see if they have elevation in these antiphospholipid antibodies. We see here that they have elevation in the lupus anticoagulant, as well as elevation in both the IgG and IgM for the anticardiolipin and anti-beta-2 glycoprotein. Oftentimes for these IgG and IgMs, we're looking for elevation above 40 for these to be positive. The team also ordered a heparin PF4 antibody, which came back negative. So this is suggesting that the patient doesn't have heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. So the team states that they think that the patient has catastrophic antiphospholipid syndrome, and they think the patient's quote-unquote triple positive. So what does that mean? How do we go about classifying antiphospholipid syndrome? So first, when we think of APS, thrombotic antiphospholipid syndrome is going to be characterized by any venous, arterial, or mycovascular thrombosis, but catastrophic APS is going to be a specific, very rare subset of our patient population, and it's going to occur in less than 1%. These patients have greatly increased mortality, and this is because they have similar thrombotic events to thrombotic APS. However, they have widespread intravascular clotting, leading to multi-organ failure. The other type of APS is going to be obstetric antiphospholipid syndrome, and this will be characterized by pregnancy loss or preeclampsia. And for the purposes of our presentation today, we won't be diving into this specific type of APS. Looking at our thrombotic antiphospholipid syndrome, we can then classify these patients as high risk, and this is going to be dependent on the presence of the three antibodies that we've discussed. So if a patient were positive for all three of them, we may say that they're triple positive, and this group is going to be our highest risk patients for thrombosis and recurrent thrombosis. As we move to our other group, we're going to define them as non-high risk today. However, I do want to note this does not mean that they don't have a significant risk of thrombosis. These patients may be single or double positive for the antiphospholipid antibodies. Um, and when we think about their risk, I think we should consider three specific things. One, the first being, what type of antiphospholipid antibody is elevated? Two, how elevated are the antiphospholipid antibodies? And three, does the patient have any additional risk factors that could increase this risk? For example, lupus anticoagulant is thought to have a higher risk of thrombosis compared to the other two antiphospholipid antibodies. And patients that have very high circulation of antiphospholipid antibodies may be considered at a higher risk that's, than somebody who just has a slight elevation in these antibodies. So thinking back to our patient that has an acute kidney injury and acute respiratory distress syndrome in addition to a new pulmonary embolism, I would also think that they have catastrophic antiphospholipid syndrome. And so let's take a look into the recommendations for current treatment in catastrophic uh, antiphospholipid syndrome or CAPS. So while this condition is very, very rare, like I said, affecting less than 1% of this population, that means that we don't have very many studies to look at treatment modalities. However, we do have one study by Severa and colleagues in 2009 and this was done with 280 patients in a CAPS registry. The mean age was 37 and 72% were females and 40% had systemic lupus erythematous, representing our typical patient population that we normally see. 
As for precipitating factors, and we think about triggering events, 52% of these patients had a triggering event, the most common being infection, surgery, or anticoagulation withdrawal or subtherapeutic INR. 46% of these patients, this was the first manifestation of APS. And unfortunately, 44% of these patients passed away at the times of CAPS presentation. Therefore, I think this really emphasizes the high mortality rate that we see in CAPS. So what about treatment modalities? If you looked at the presence or absence of one treatment modality, they said they found increased recovery in patients that were treated with anticoagulants. And this was 63% versus 22%, and that was found to be statistically significant. However, many, many of these patients received combinations of different therapies. And so they said they found recovery more frequently seen in patients that received anticoagulation in addition to steroids and plasmapheresis, plus or minus IV immunoglobulin. While this wasn't statistically significant, we don't have much literature in this area, and so we still want to note that there does seem to be a difference in the percentage of 69% to 54%. While this study is one of the few that we have, we do have some best practice guidelines from McMaster, and they currently state that they recommend the use of anticoagulation in this patient population, especially heparin, as that's the most commonly one that was used, in addition to steroids, plasmapheresis, and IV immunoglobulin based on patient characteristics. While this specific study didn't address aspirin use at all, the best practice guidelines do recommend the use of aspirin, thinking that the risks of bleeding don't outweigh the possible benefits in this patient population. Lastly, um, I think it's really important that we get our rheumatology, vascular, and hematology colleagues involved as well, as the mortality is very high in this patient population, and they are very complex. While they have clots, they also can also have a high risk of bleeding as well. For example, if a patient were to have a stroke, they could have a hemorrhagic conversion. So using interprofessional collaboration, I think is important in this patient population. Also, the use of monoclonal antibodies can be considered to reduce the amount of circulating antiphospholipid antibodies. However, we won't be digging into that today for the purposes of this presentation. I do want to point out one clinical pearl. And so patients with lupus anticoagulant can have artificially elevated baselines of APTT and INRs. So if you do have an elevation in APTT on baseline, I would recommend the use of anti-10A for heparin monitoring. If anti-10A is going to be the standard for your institution, I still think it's important to get a baseline APTT and INR. As we transition to other anticoagulation strategies, these can be used to correlate the different monitoring strategies that we have. So going back to our patient, after they were admitted to the ICU, they were started on a heparin drip, received some steroids and aspirin, and completed plasmapheresis. A few days later, they were clinically stable and were able to be extubated and moved to the general floor. The providers are now looking to transition to an oral anticoagulant on discharge and are asking, should I use warfarin or can I use a DOAC? And so let's look at the literature. First, we're gonna look at rivaroxaban versus warfarin and we'll go through three randomized clinical trials. I will note that there are multiple studies looking at the comparison of these two medications. However, many of them are going to be descriptive analyses or retrospective in nature. And so really these three trials are the best trials that we have at this time to evaluate the outcomes. 
So we'll start with the rivaroxaban and APS trial. This was a non-inferiority trial that included APS patients on warfarin for at least three months after a venous thrombotic event. And their primary outcome was to look at the percent of endogenous thrombin potential change, or ETP. And this is really a measure to look at how hyper or hypocoagulable a patient is. Secondary outcomes included peak thrombin generation and thrombosis and bleeding. Peak thrombin generation would expect to be prolonged in our patients that are on anticoagulants. Next, we'll take a look at the TRAPS trial or the trial of rivaroxaban in APS. And this non-inferiority trial was a little bit different than our RAPS uh, trial. They included triple positive APS, APS patients only. So really only our very high risk patients as we defined prior. As for the primary outcome, they looked at the cumulative incidence of thrombotic events, major bleeding and vascular death. Finally, we'll look at the Ordi Ross and colleagues trial from 2019. This was also a non-inferiority trial that included all APS patients with confirmed thrombosis. And in this specific trial, they broke apart thrombotic events and major bleeding events instead of doing a cumulative incidence. And then they did multiple secondary outcomes, but for today, we're just gonna look at type of thrombosis. I do wanna note for the TRAPS and the Ordi Ross trial, the non-inferiority margin or the threshold is gonna be 50% of the preservation of warfarin for these thrombotic events or cumulative incidents. So looking at our uh, patient characteristics in these trials, we'll see that the patient populations are going to be fairly low across the board, not surprising as this isn't a commonly seen condition. But for dosing, we see they all compared rivaroxaban 20 milligrams to warfarin with an INR goal of two to three. However, Ordi Ross did allow for an INR goal of 3.1 to four if the patient had a history of recurrent thrombosis. This was a small percentage of that patient population though at 14%. Uh, we also see that a high percentage were female as, uh, as expected based on our baseline patient characteristics that we see. And I think the important thing to note is going to be the triple positivity percent in these trials. So RAPS didn't really have many triple positive patients. However, TRAP only in included triple positive and Ordi Ross also has a very high percentage of triple positive patients. And that'll be important to remember as we look at the outcomes. As for follow-ups, we have as short as seven months in the RAPS trial, up to three years in the Ordi Ross trial. All right, so looking at outcomes, we'll start with RAPS. And so they found that rivaroxaban was inferior to warfarin for the percent change of ETP. However, they did say that rivaroxaban had a lower peak thrombin generation. Overall, they didn't see any events of thrombosis or major bleeding events. And so their overall outcome was rivaroxaban was inferior to warfarin for the percent change of ETP, but reduced the peak thrombin generation. So we need further studies to kind of assess whether or not this would be a good anticoagulant to use in APS. Moving on to TRAPS trial, this trial was unfortunately terminated. Uh, there were increased composite events in the rivaroxaban group with 11 events versus two events. And breaking down those cumulative events specifically, rivaroxaban had seven thrombotic events and four bleeding events compared to zero thrombotic events and two bleeding events with warfarin. If we look at those thrombotic events in rivaroxaban, they included uh, strokes and myocardial infarction. And um, the events occurred within 20 days after randomization or years after randomization. 
When we look at Ordi Ross, we find that rivaroxaban had a near doubling of recurrent thrombosis with 11 events to six events, but they did find a similar rate of major bleeding with rivaroxaban with six events to seven. I do want to note, though, that the thrombotic events that we were seeing in the rivaroxaban arm were predominantly arterial in nature, with nine of those events being arterial. And so this study specifically said that rivaroxaban did not show non-inferiority to warfarin for APS. A few things that I want to point out here is that there could be differences in these outcomes based on the duration that these trials followed patients. So Ordi Ross didn't see any thrombotic or major bleeding events, but they really only followed patients for seven months, while TRAPS and Ordi Ross followed patients for two to three years. We all know that medication adherence or follow-up may decrease with time, and so I question whether if RAPS continued to follow these patients for a longer duration, would they have seen thrombotic or bleeding events? We don't know. In addition, when we think about RAPS versus the TRAPS and ORDI ross TRAPS and ORDI ross had a higher percent of our triple positive patients or a high risk of recurrent thrombosis. Therefore, I would possibly expect to see more thrombotic events in these two trials compared to the RAPS trial. So you may be asking, well, we just went over rivaroxaban, but what about apixaban? So we have one trial called the ASTRO-APS that was completed in 2022, and this included th thrombotic APS patients that were receiving anticoagulation for at least six months. These patients were randomized to receive apixaban 2.5 milligrams BID or warfarin with an INR goal of two to three. This also was a non-inferiority trial, and they were looking at the combined rate of thrombosis, as well as secondary outcomes, including bleeding events and patient satisfaction. Three months into the trial and 25 patients randomized, we unfortunately had three stroke events in the apixaban group. So all patients were increased to receive five milligrams of apixaban BID, as well as anybody randomized further after that would also receive five milligrams BID. Let's move ahead in the future again, three months later, we find that three more patients had strokes in the apixaban group and 48 total patients were randomized. And so this led to study termination as there were increased thrombotic events with the apixaban group. So we just went through all of these trials and unfortunately the patient populations are very small. Luckily, we do have a meta-analysis that combines all four of these trials together to see if we can find any trends in the data. If we look at all-cause death and major bleeding, we find that there appears to be no difference between the DOAC and the warfarin groups. However, there may be increased risk of stroke with the DOACs compared to warfarin. We also see that the there may be an increased risk of composite of arterial or venous thrombosis. However, this may be driven more by the composite of arterial thrombosis as we see that venothrombus embolism events was not significant between the two groups. So this is gonna to lead to our next participation question of the day. So based on the literature comparing DOACs and warfarin, DOACs increase the risk of which patient outcome? So if you place your marker in the middle, that'll suggest it increased both, or if you place your marker to either end, that'll suggest an increase in one, but not the other. Alrighty, this is looking great. So I agree with everyone here that I think the biggest risk that we have is the increase in thrombosis. So a few of those studies suggested that there may be an increase in bleeding, but when we look at the meta-analysis, there appears to be no difference. However, the meta-analysis did show higher odds of patients having strokes or arterial events. So I agree that thrombosis would be the correct answer here. Great job, everyone.
Looking at these trials, I think the FDA has also started to see these trends. And now in the package inserts for apixaban and rivaroxaban, we now see a warning and precaution saying that these DOACs are not recommended to be utilized in patients with triple positive antiphospholipid syndrome. And so thinking about all these trials and what we've just reviewed, I imagine you're thinking, well, why might DOACs not work as well as warfarin? There are also multiple hypotheses here. However, I think one of the ones that I centered around was the mechanism behind the medications. So here on the screen, we have both the intrinsic and extrinsic pathways of the anticoagulation, and we have protein CNS. When we think about DOACs, this is specifically going to inhibit uh, the 10A factor, and this is really downstream in our pathway. But when we look at warfarin, we see that it has an impact all over in the anticoagulation cascade. And not only is it inhibiting these factors, but it's depleting the factors. And so this possibly could be a difference in what we're seeing is depletion versus inhibition, as well as the multiple areas of the cascade that we're impacting. I also want to note that DOACs likely have a decreased half-life compared to warfarin. And so if a patient were to miss one dose of a DOAC, they might be sub-therapeutic more quickly than if a patient were to miss one dose of warfarin. That could have an impact as well. I also thought, well, how much of these patients, how many of these patients had their INR in the therapeutic range? And how many of these patients were taking their DOACs regularly? So if we look at the four trials that we reviewed, we find that the warfarin percent time and therapeutic range was as high as 67% as seen in the TRAPS trial. And many of the trials also had pill counting strategies to assess for medication adherence and DOACs. And those were in the high 90s. I do want to say that 60% time and therapeutic range for warfarin is not uncommon to see in our patients. And so that shouldn't deter providers from utilizing warfarin in these patients. However, our goal should always be 100% time and therapeutic range. I do, I do think overall though, this shows that the differences between warfarin and DOAX in these outcomes is likely multifactorial. Unfortunately, we don't have the exact answer at this time. So back to our patient who was successfully discharged on warfarin, they're coming back to the, cl the clinic for their 12-week follow-up to get their antiphospholipid antibodies tested again. And we see that they have elevation in lupus anticoagulant in all of the IgG and IgM antibodies in anti-cardiolipin and anti-beta-2 glycoprotein 1. And so the provider notes that this patient is officially triple positive for APS and says, well, they're at a higher risk. Does that mean that my INR goal should be higher as well, or is two to three okay? So let's look at two different trials, looking at war different warfarin INR goals. First, we have the warfarin and APS trial that was done in 2005. These included patients, APS patients that had lupus anticoagulant and or moderate to high anticardiolipin antibodies, comparing an INR goal of two to three versus three to 4.5. As for recurrent thrombosis, they had six events in the higher intensity group versus three in the lower. And for bleeding events, they had 15 events in the higher intensity and eight events in the lower intensity. We also have a study from Crowther et al. in 2003 that included APS patients with previous thrombosis. They compared a warfarin INR goal of 2 to 3 versus warfarin 3.1 to 4. As for the same events, we had recurrent thrombosis in six of the patients in the high intensity group and two events in the low intensity, and the bleeding events were three events versus four events. And so all of these outcomes did not show a statistically significant difference between the two. 
But one thing that I wanted to look at specifically is what was the mean INR and the standard deviation of those mean INRs? And what was the percent time and therapeutic range? If we look at the WAPS trial, the INR goal of two to three had a mean of 2.5 and the standard deviation of 0.3, meaning that both sides of the standard deviation were still within the goal of two to three. When we look at the higher goal of three to 4.5, we find that the mean is on the lower end of that goal and the standard deviation actually passes into that lower goal of two to three. Looking at the Crowther study, we look at time and, percent, time and therapeutic range. So as for the warfarin of two to three, we did pretty well and 71% of those INRs were within goal. But then as we look to the 3.1 to four, we find that 43% of these INRs were below the range. They also reported that of those 43% of INRs that were below the range, 86% of those were within the range of two to three. Therefore, I think we have some limitations in these studies as many of these INRs may have crossed into the multiple groups, making them look more similar. Therefore, I think with our patient with triple positive APS today, I would say that the high intensity warfarin was not superior to an INR goal of two to three. And so therefore I would recommend warfarin with an INR goal of two to three. I also wanna note a limitation of these studies is that warfarin was not monitored with chromogenic factor 10. And so in our patients with lupus anticoagulant that have elevated baseline APTT or elevated INR, we may wanna utilize chromogenic factor 10 as this was, will not be impacted by those baseline elevations. And so this should be considered when you're taking your baseline values for all of your patients. So if they have lupus anticoagulant, remember to check their baseline INR and consider the use of chromogenic factor 10 if that's elevated. So what if they have a thrombotic event while on therapeutic warfarin? I think the first thing to consider before even adjusting therapy is one, was the patient subtherapeutic when they had the event? We wanna ensure that this would be like a full medication failure. Two, I would say we want to make sure that this wasn't a remnant of an old clot and that this is a brand new thrombotic event. In these specific patients, we may have to consider alternative therapy. For example, a warfarin with an INR goal of three to four, adding aspirin, moving to low molecular weight heparin or a different anticoagulant. And to be honest, these are going to be very, very complex cases where the risks and benefits of bleeding versus clotting need to be assessed. And so these are great times for us to work with our interprofessional colleagues in vascular hematology. Um, and rheumatology to determine the best anticoagulation strategy for these patients. In addition, I would say possibly getting factor studies on these patients may be helpful. If the factors were fully depleted on warfarin with a goal INR of two to three, I'm not sure how much utility there would be to increase the INR to three to four if we have adequate depletion of those factors already. So you may be asking, what are current guideline recommendations for the use of anticoagulants and antiphospholipid syndrome? And so we have quite a few. Today, I'll be summarizing the European League Against Rheumatism, the American Society of Hematology, the International Society of Thrombosis and Hemostasis, the European Society for Vascular Surgery, and the International Congress on APL Antibody Task Force to see their thoughts on oral anticoagulation. So I made a flow chart to try and summarize all of these together. So we'll start with a patient with APS. Starting on the right-hand side of the screen, anyone that has an arterial thrombotic event, such as an MI, stroke, or systemic embolism, all of these guidelines are going to agree that the patients should receive warfarin and DOAC should not be used in these patients as they're very high risk of recurrent thrombosis. 
What about our patients that are triple positive APS with a venous and or arterial thrombotic events as defined before these are also high risk patients? All of the guidelines, once again, would recommend the use of warfarin and DOAX would not be recommended. Where we start to see some differences is our patients with APS that have a, a venous thrombotic event, so no arterial events. If the patient's triple positive, we once again want to go straight to warfarin and we wouldn't recommend a DOAC in these guidelines. However, what about our patients that are single or double positive? This is where the guidelines tend to differ just a little bit or have other considerations. All of these patients should still have warfarin recommended as first line. However, three of the guidelines add a little caveat saying DOACs may be considered. However, these consider considerations are very lengthy. And so a few of them are contraindications to warfarin, serious adverse events on warfarin. They have to have good medication adherence and that the patient should be educated on all the risk of increased thrombotic events with the DOACs and all the trials that we discussed and really participate in shared decision-making so that they can, they can decide which medication would be best for them. I wanted to take a moment to kind of put it all together and provide my personal opinions after reading all the literature and speaking with some of our content experts here at Mayo. So if we have an APS diagnosis, I would start a patient on IV heparin, and then I would make sure to be getting their baseline APTT and INR, considering the use of anti-10A monitoring if they do have a baseline elevation in APTT. From there, I would transition patients to warfarin with an INR goal of two to three, making sure that if they do have an elevation in the INR at baseline, that I'd be using chromogenic factor 10. And then from there, if a patient were able to use warfarin or maybe they were subtherapeutic on warfarin and were able to be therapeutic, this is when we have to start considering other ant alternative anticoagulants. I would once again want to make sure I'm working with my interprofessional colleagues to determine the best anticoagulation. But at this time, I would not personally recommend DOACs for any patients with APS based on the fact that two of the trials were terminated early and there seems to be a possible increased risk of thrombotic events, I think for right now with the current literature that we have, I wouldn't recommend the utilization of DOACs. So this will lead to our last participation question of the day. So what should be considered the first line option for oral anticoagulation treatment for patients with APS? Alrighty, so I agree with the majority here with warfarin with an INR goal of two to three. So with the current trials on rivaroxaban and apixaban, I unfortunately think the literature isn't strong enough to support the use of DOAX, and there could be increased risk of thrombotic events with the use of these. As for anoxaparin one milligram per kilogram two times a day, this may be an alternative that somebody may consider if a patient weren't able to use warfarin or we needed to use for bridging. Um, but it's important to note that these patients will likely need therapeutic dosing of anoxaparin. Lastly, looking at the INR goals, looking at those two trials that we reviewed, I think an INR goal of two to three is best for patients right now. Um, however, an INR goal of three to four may be considered in those events where patients have a thrombotic event with an INR of two to three that was in goal. And that would be at the direction of our interprofessional colleagues as well as pharmacy, the pharmacy team. I did want to point out that there are two current clinical trials. One of them is the RIAS trial. So they included patients with APS and stroke or TIA with or without systemic lupus erythematous, and they excluded our high-risk uh, triple positive APS patients. 
Interestingly, they're doing quite a different dosing strategy than many of the past trials. So they're using rivaroxaban 15 milligrams BID versus warfarin with an INR goal of 3.5. So much higher than we'd seen in our past trials. Their primary outcome will be changes in white matter volume, and they're going to follow patients for over a year. The second trial that's currently ongoing and recruiting is the International Registry of Thrombotic APS Patients on DOACs, and so their primary outcome is going to be rate of recurrent thrombosis, so essentially following any of those patients that are continuing on DOACs to see if there is an increased rate of thrombosis. So as for my summary today, if you take away a few clinical pearls, that's great. And as for my summary points, I want you all to know that APS is a thrombophilia that leads to arterial, venous, and microvascular thrombosis, and that we have three different antiphospholipid antibodies, lupus anticoagulant, anticardiolipin, and anti-beta-2 glycoprotein-1 that are used for the diagnosis and in the determination of thrombotic risk in APS. Finally, warfarin should be our preferred oral anticoagulant for our patients with APS, and we should be using an INR goal of two to three for these patients. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics. Thank you.